Section 6 of Appreciations with an Essay on Style. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eberly Thomas. Appreciations by Walter Pater. Section 6 Coleridge, Part 2. The period of Coleridge's residence at Nether Stowey. 1797 to 1798 was for him the annus mirabilis nearly all the chief works by which his poetic fame will live were then composed or planned what shapes itself for criticism as the main phenomenon of coleridge's poetic life is not as with most true poets the gradual development of a poetic gift determined enriched retarded by the actual circumstances of the poet's life but the sudden blossoming through one short season of such a gift already perfect in its kind which thereafter deteriorates as suddenly with something like premature old age connecting this phenomenon with the leading motive of his prose writings we might note it as the deterioration of a productive or creative power into one merely metaphysical or discursive. In his unambitious conception of his function as a poet, and in the very limited quantity of his poetical performance, as I have said, he was a contrast to his friend Wordsworth. That friendship with Wordsworth, the chief developing circumstance of his poetic life, comprehended a very close intellectual sympathy and in such association chiefly lies whatever truth there may be in the popular classification of coleridge as a member of what is called the lake school coleridge's philosophical speculations do really turn on the ideas which underlay wordsworth's poetical practice his prose works are one long explanation of all that is involved in that famous distinction between the fancy and the imagination of what is understood by both writers as the imaginative quality in the use of poetic figures we may take some words of shakespeare as an example my cousin suffolk my soul shall keep thine company to heaven tarry sweet soul for mine then fly abreast the complete infusion here of the figure into the thought so vividly realized that though birds are not actually mentioned yet the sense of their flight conveyed to us by the single word abreast comes to be more than half of the thought itself this as the expression of exalted feeling is an instance of what coleridge meant by imagination and this sort of identification of the poet's thought of himself with the image or figure which serves him is the secret sometimes of a singularly entire realization of that image such as makes these lines of coleridge for instance imaginative amid the howl of more than wintry storms the halcyon hears the voice of vernal hours already on the wing there are many such figures both in coleridge's verse and prose he has too his passages of that sort of impassioned contemplation on the permanent and elementary conditions of nature and humanity which wordsworth held to be the essence of a poet as it would be his proper function to awaken such contemplation in other men 
those moments as coleridge says addressing him moments awful now in my inner life and now abroad when power streamed from thee and thy soul received the light reflected as a light bestowed the entire poem from which these lines are taken composed on the night after wordsworth's recitation of a poem on the growth of an individual mind is in its high-pitched strain of meditation and in the combined justice and elevation of its philosophical expression high and passionate thoughts to their own music chanted wholly sympathetic with the prelude which it celebrates and of which the subject is in effect the generation of the spirit of the lake poetry the lines to joseph cottle have the same philosophically imaginative character the ode to dejection being coleridge's most sustained effort of this kind it is in a highly sensitive apprehension of the aspects of external nature that coleridge identifies himself most closely with one of the main tendencies of the lake school a tendency instinctive and no mere matter of theory in him as in wordsworth that record of the green light which lingers in the west and again of the western sky and its peculiar tint of yellow-green which byron found ludicrously untrue but which surely needs no defence is a characteristic example of a singular watchfulness for the minute fact and expression of natural scenery pervading all he wrote a closeness to the exact physiognomy of nature having something to do with that idealistic philosophy which sees in the external world no mere concurrence of mechanical agencies but an animated body informed and made expressive like the body of man by an indwelling intelligence it was a tendency doubtless in the air for shelley too is affected by it and turner with the school of landscape which followed him i had found coleridge tells us that outward forms the loftiest still receive their finer influence from the world within fair ciphers of vague import where the eye traces no spot in which the heart may read history and prophecy and this induces in him no indifference to actual colour and form and process but such minute realism as this the thin grey cloud is spread on high it covers but not hides the sky the moon is behind and at the full and yet she looks both small and dull or this which has a touch of romantic weirdness naught was green upon the oak but moss and rarest mistletoe or this there is not wind enough to twirl the one red leaf the last of its clan that dances as often as dance it can hanging so light and hanging so high on the topmost twig that looks up at the sky or this with a weirdness again like that of some wild french etcher lo the new moon winter bright and overspread with phantom light with swimming phantom light o'erspread but rimmed and circled with a silver thread i see the old moon in her lap foretelling the coming on of rain and squally blast he has a like imaginative apprehension of the silent and unseen processes of nature its ministries of dew and frost for instance as when he writes in april 
a balmy night and though the stars be dim yet let us think upon the vernal showers that gladden the green earth and we shall find a pleasure in the dimness of the stars of such imaginative treatment of landscape there is no better instance than the description of the dell in fears in solitude a green and silent spot amid the hills a small and silent dell or stiller place no singing skylark ever poised himself but the dell bathed by the mist is fresh and delicate as vernal cornfield or the unripe flax when through its half-transparent stalks at eve the level sunshine glimmers with green light the gust that roared and died away to the distant tree heard and only heard in this low dell bowed not the delicate grass this curious insistence of the mind on one particular spot till it seems to attain actual expression and a sort of soul in it a mood so characteristic of the lake school occurs in an earnest political poem written in april seventeen ninety eight during the alarm of an invasion and that silent dell is the background against which the tumultuous fears of the poet are in strong relief while the quiet sense of the place maintained all through them gives a true poetic unity to the piece good political poetry political poetry that shall be permanently moving can perhaps only be written on motives which for those they concern have ceased to be open questions and are really beyond argument while coleridge's political poems are for the most part on open questions for although it was a great part of his intellectual ambition to subject political questions to the action of the fundamental ideas of his philosophy he was nevertheless an ardent partisan first on one side then on the other of the actual politics proper to the end of the last and the beginning of the present century where there is still room for much difference of opinion yet the destiny of nations though formless as a whole and unfinished presents many traces of his most elevated manner of speculation cast into that sort of imaginative philosophical expression in which in effect the language itself is inseparable from or essentially a part of the thought france an ode begins with a famous apostrophe to liberty ye clouds that far above me float and pause whose pathless march no mortal may control ye ocean waves that wheresoe'er ye roll yield homage only to eternal laws ye woods that listen to the night-bird's singing midway the smooth and perilous slope reclined save when your own imperious branches swinging have made a solemn music of the wind where like a man beloved of god through glooms which never woodman trod how oft pursuing fancies holy my moonlight way o'er flowering weeds i wound inspired beyond the guess of folly by each rude shape and wild unconquerable sound o ye loud waves and o ye forests high and o ye clouds that far above me soared thou rising sun thou blue rejoicing sky 
yea everything that is and will be free bear witness for me wheresoe'er ye be with what deep worship i have still adored the spirit of divinest liberty and the whole ode though after coleridge's way not quite equal to that exordium is an example of strong national sentiment partly in indignant reaction against his own earlier sympathy with the french republic inspiring a composition which in spite of some turgid lines really justifies itself as poetry and has that true unity of effect which the ode requires liberty after all his hopes of young france is only to be found in nature thou speedest on thy subtle pinions the guide of homeless winds and playmate of the waves in his changes of political sentiment coleridge was associated with the lake school and there is yet one other very different sort of sentiment in which he is one with that school yet all himself his sympathy namely with the animal world that was a sentiment connected at once with the love of outward nature in himself and in the lake school and its assertion of the natural affections in their simplicity with the homeliness and pity consequent upon that assertion the lines to a young ass tethered where the close-eaten grass is scarcely seen while sweet around her waves the tempting green which had seemed merely whimsical in their day indicate a vein of interest constant in coleridge's poems and at its height in his greatest poems in christabel where it has its effect as it were antipathetically in the vivid realization of the serpentine element in geraldine's nature and in the ancient mariner whose fate is interwoven with that of the wonderful bird at whose blessing of the water-snakes the curse for the death of the albatross passes away and where the moral of the love of all creatures as a sort of religious duty is definitely expressed christabel though not printed till eighteen sixteen was written mainly in the year seventeen ninety seven the rhyme of the ancient mariner was printed as a contribution to the lyrical ballads in seventeen ninety eight and these two poems belong to the great year of coleridge's poetic production his twenty-fifth year in poetic quality above all in that most poetic of all qualities a keen sense of and delight in beauty the infection of which lays hold upon the reader they are quite out of proportion to all his other compositions the form in both is that of the ballad with some of its terminology and some also of its quaint conceits they connect themselves with that revival of ballad literature of which percy's relics and in another way macpherson's ossian are monuments and which afterwards so powerfully affected scott young-eyed poesy all deftly masked as hoar antiquity the ancient mariner as also in its measure christabel is a romantic poem impressing us by bold invention and appealing to that taste for the supernatural that longing for le frisson a shudder to which the romantic school in germany and its derivations in england and france directly ministered in coleridge personally this taste had been encouraged by his odd and out-of-the-way reading in the old-fashioned literature of the marvellous books like purchase's pilgrims early voyages like hacklet's 
old naturalists and visionary moralists like thomas burnett from whom he quotes the motto of the ancient mariner facile credo plures esse naturas invisibiles quam visibiles in rerum universitatae etc fancies of the strange things which may very well happen even in broad daylight to men shut up in ships far off on the sea seem to have occurred to the human mind in all ages with a peculiar readiness and often have about them from the story of the stealing of dionysus downwards the fascination of a certain dreamy grace which distinguishes them from other kinds of marvellous inventions this sort of fascination the ancient mariner brings to its highest degree it is the delicacy the dreamy grace in his presentation of the marvellous which makes coleridge's work so remarkable the too palpable intruders from a spiritual world in almost all ghost literature in scott and shakespeare even have a kind of crudity or coarseness coleridge's power is in the very fineness with which as by some really ghostly finger he brings home to our inmost sense his inventions daring as they are the skeleton ship the polar spirit the inspiriting of the dead corpses of the ship's crew the rhyme of the ancient mariner has the plausibility the perfect adaptation to reason and the general aspect of life which belongs to the marvellous when actually presented as part of a credible experience in our dreams doubtless the mere experience of the opium-eater the habit he must almost necessarily fall into of noting the more elusive phenomena of dreams had something to do with that in its essence however it is connected with a more purely intellectual circumstance in the development of coleridge's poetic gift someone once asked william blake to whom coleridge has many resemblances when either is at his best uh, that whole episode of the reinspiriting of the ship's crew in the ancient mariner being comparable to blake's well-known design of the morning stars singing together someone once asked blake whether he had ever seen a ghost and was surprised when the famous seer who ought one might think to have seen so many answered frankly only once his spirits at once more delicate and so much more real than any ghost the burden as they were the privilege of his temperament like it were an integral element in his everyday life and the difference of mood expressed in that question and its answer is indicative of a change of temper in regard to the supernatural which has passed over the whole modern mind and of which the true measure is the influence of the writings of swedenborg what that change is we may see if we compare the vision by which swedenborg was called as he thought to his work with the ghost which called hamlet or the spells of marlowe's faust with those of goethe's the modern mind so minutely self-scrutinizing if it is to be affected at all by a sense of the supernatural needs to be more finely touched than was possible in the older romantic presentment of it the spectral object so crude so impossible has become plausible as the blot upon the brain that will show itself without and is understood to be but a condition of one's own mind for which according to the scepticism latent at least in so much of our modern philosophy the so-called real things themselves are but spectra after all 
it is this finer more delicately marvellous supernaturalism fruit of his more delicate psychology that coleridge infuses into romantic adventure itself also then a new or revived thing in english literature and with a fineness of weird effect in the ancient mariner unknown in those older more simple romantic legends and ballads it is a flower of medieval or later german romance growing up in the peculiarly compounded atmosphere of modern psychological speculation and putting forth in it wholly new qualities the quaint prose commentary which runs side by side with the verse of the ancient mariner illustrates this a composition of quite a different shade of beauty and merit from that of the verse which it accompanies connecting this the chief poem of coleridge with his philosophy and emphasizing therein that psychological interest of which i have spoken its curious soul lore completeness the perfectly rounded wholeness and unity of the impression it leaves on the mind of a reader who fairly gives himself to it that too is one of the characteristics of a really excellent work in the poetic as in every other kind of art and by this completeness the ancient mariner certainly gains upon christabel a completeness entire as that of wordsworth's leech-gatherer or keats's st agnes eve each typical in its way of such wholeness or entirety of effect on a careful reader it is coleridge's one great complete work the one really finished thing in a life of many beginnings christabel remained a fragment in the ancient mariner this unity is secured in part by the skill with which the incidents of the marriage feast are made to break in dreamily from time to time upon the main story and then how pleasantly how reassuringly the whole nightmare story itself is made to end among the clear fresh sounds and lights of the bay where it began with the moonlight steeped in silentness the steady weathercock so different from the rhyme of the ancient mariner in regard to this completeness of effect christabel illustrates the same complexion of motives a like intellectual situation here too the work is of a kind peculiar to one who touches the characteristic motives of the old romantic ballad with a spirit made subtle and fine by modern reflection as we feel i think in such passages as but though my slumber had gone away this dream it would not pass away it seems to live upon mine eye and for she belike had drunken deep of all the blessedness of sleep and again with such perplexity of mind as dreams too lively leave behind and that gift of handling the finer passages of human feeling at once with power and delicacy which was another result of his finer psychology of his exquisitely refined habit of self-reflection is illustrated by a passage on friendship in the second part alas they had been friends in youth but whispering tongues can poison truth and constancy lives in realms above and life is thorny and youth is vain and to be wroth with one we love doth work like madness in the brain and thus it chanced as i divine with roland and sir leoline each spake words of high disdain and insult to his heart's best brother they parted ne'er to meet again but never either found another to free the hollow heart from paining they stood aloof the scars remaining like cliffs which had been rent asunder 
a dreary sea now flows between but neither heat nor frost nor thunder shall wholly do away i ween the marks of that which once hath been i suppose these lines leave almost every reader with a quickened sense of the beauty and compass of human feeling and it is the sense of such richness and beauty which in spite of his dejection in spite of that burden of his morbid lassitude accompanies coleridge himself through life a warm poetic joy in everything beautiful whether it be a moral sentiment like the friendship of roland and leoline or only the flakes of falling light from the water-snakes this joy visiting him now and again after sickly dreams in sleep or waking as a relief not to be forgotten and with such a power of felicitous expression that the infection of it passes irresistibly to the reader such is the predominant element in the matter of his poetry as cadence is the predominant quality of its form we bless thee for our creation he might have said in his later period of definite religious assent because the world is so beautiful the world of ideas living spirits detached from the divine nature itself to inform and lift the heavy mass of material things the world of man above all in his melodious and intelligible speech the world of living creatures and natural scenery the world of dreams what he really did say by way of a tombless epitaph is true enough of himself sickness tis true whole years of weary days besieged him close even to the gates and inlets of his life but it is true no less that strenuous firm and with a natural gladness he maintained the citadel unconquered and in joy was strong to follow the delightful muse for not a hidden path that to the shades of the beloved parnassian forest leads lurked undiscovered by him not a rill there issues from the fount of hippocrene but he had traced it upward to its source through open glade dark glen and secret dell knew the gay wild flowers on its banks and culled its medicinable herbs yet oft alone piercing the long neglected holy cave the haunt obscure of old philosophy he bade with lifted torch its starry walls sparkle as erst they sparkled to the flame of glorious lamps tended by saint and sage o oh, famed for calmer times and nobler hearts o oh, studious poet eloquent for truth philosopher contemning wealth and death yet docile childlike full of life and love the student of empirical science asks are absolute principles attainable what are the limits of knowledge the answer he receives from science itself is not ambiguous what the moralist asks is shall we gain or lose by surrendering human life to the relative spirit experience answers that the dominant tendency of life is to turn ascertained truth into a dead letter to make us all the phlegmatic servants of routine the relative spirit by its constant dwelling on the more fugitive conditions or circumstances of things 
breaking through a thousand rough and brutal classifications and giving elasticity to inflexible principles begets an intellectual finesse of which the ethical result is a delicate and tender justice in the criticism of human life who would gain more than coleridge by criticism in such a spirit we know how his life has appeared when judged by absolute standards we see him trying to apprehend the absolute to stereotype forms of faith and philosophy to attain as he says fixed principles in politics morals and religion to fix one mode of life as the essence of life refusing to see the parts as parts only and all the time his own pathetic history pleads for a more elastic moral philosophy than his and cries out against every formula less living and flexible than life itself from his childhood he hungered for eternity there after all is the incontestable claim of coleridge the perfect flower of any elementary type of life must always be precious to humanity and coleridge is a true flower of the ennuyé of the type of rene more than child harold more than werther more than rene himself coleridge by what he did what he was and what he failed to do represents that inexhaustible discontent languor and homesickness that endless regret the chords of which ring all through our modern literature it is to the romantic element in literature that those qualities belong one day perhaps we may come to forget the distant horizon with full knowledge of the situation to be content with what is here and now and herein is the essence of classical feeling but by us of the present moment certainly by us for whom the greek spirit with its engaging naturalness simple chastened debonair is itself the sangreal of an endless pilgrimage coleridge with his passion for the absolute for something fixed where all is moving his faintness his broken memory his intellectual disquiet may still be ranked among the interpreters of one of the constituent elements of our life end of section six recording by eberly thomas